Our reading this morning is the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. <clears throat> In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke beastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was like white wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority 
but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The interpretation of the dream. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others. And that it had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed a kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from their kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress the holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed 
over to the most holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Amen. May God bless this reading. Thank you, Ian. Wow. <laughs> Amazing imagery. Uh, let's pray before we get into it, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and as we explore this, this deep imagery, this, these potent images, Father, we ask for understanding. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And the people said, well, friends, it's very easy, isn't it, these days as followers of Jesus to get discouraged, isn't it? To get a little bit downcast uh, in, these, in these dark days. Uh, just these uh, last few days, my mates have been mercilessly mocking me because I'm the minister at the church at Bondi Junction. They've been declaring me to be unclean. Uh, just this morning, they've been texting me all sorts of manner of mocking messages with Monty Python sketches saying, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. Very unfortunate, I thought. Pretty rude of them. Um, but there, it, is, uh, it is a case whereby we, we are feeling a little bit scared. There are many people that are fearful. Again, just this week with this latest uh, outbreak, uh, apart, of, of course, from simply the, the COVID stuff that continues uh, to, to rage around us, the world can be a little bit of a scary place at times, of course, we're regularly hearing news of, of church closures and we're wondering what, what God has in store. Sometimes it's easy to think that things are looking a, a little bit grim and, and hopeless in the church. But friends, I have good news for you this morning. Daniel brings you good news this morning. As scary as it can be to be in the midst of a, of a pandemic uh, with fresh outbreaks, I want to encourage you that these are in fact good days to be a follower of Jesus. The Bible was written in many instances by people suffering in difficult times. So I think it is in difficult times that the Bible really comes alive for us. So my prayer this morning is that this, this apocalyptic literature, this imagery from Daniel chapter 7, would come alive for us and that we might find real eternal hope in these chaotic times. Now, of course, we know the context, been working our way through the book of, Dan, of Daniel he was no stranger to difficulty and to challenges. Uh, God gave him this vision that we read this morning about two and a half millennia ago, about two and a half thousand years ago. Daniel was, of course, living in exile in a foreign land. Uh, he'd been there for many, many years. Uh, this particular chapter isn't in chronological order. It's actually set before the story we heard last week where he's in the lion's den. But Jerusalem lays in ruins. His, his home country is in, is in ruins. He's, God's people were captive in Babylon. Uh, the situation felt dire. It had felt dire for decades at this point. Daniel is an old man at this point. It would actually be 70 years before God's people started traipsing their way home to rebuild Jerusalem. These were times of defeat and, and hopelessness. But God gives Daniel this vision, this dream, to both shock him 
and to comfort him. Daniel wrote it down for us so that we too today might be shocked and indeed comforted. That is my prayer for us this morning. So as disorientating as this vision can be, the layout of the chapter is relatively simple. If you've got it open in front of you, you'll see there are two broad sections. Verses 1 through to 14, the first half of the chapter is simply an explanation of what Daniel saw. And verses 15 through to the end of the chapter in in verse 28 are an explanation of that vision. Now that vision itself in verses 1 through to 14 has four different sections, four separate scenes. Uh, There's some scene changes, are signals by Daniel saying that he looked or that he, he saw. Um, Firstly, the first scene is of these terrible beasts, these these great beasts in verses 2 to 8. Then we have the Ancient of Days taking his seat as judge in verses 9 to 10. The four beasts are then judged in verses 11 to 12. And finally, uh, God gives his eternal kingdom to this mysterious figure called the Son of Man in verses 13 and 14. So this chapter... And indeed, the whole second half of the book of Daniel is in a kind of writing called apocalyptic literature, which means that it has to do with the end times. It's about how God will draw to history to a conclusion, to a dramatic conclusion. Apocalyptic literature draws back the curtain just a a little bit and, and provides us with a glimpse into God's ultimate victory. This kind of writing does not intend to give us specific details about times and places and people. It's not designed to do that. It's designed to provoke powerful feelings and emotions within us. This apocalyptic literature communicates truth in very image-heavy language. The point is not to give us specifics, but to give us hope in chaotic times. So these prophecies are not meant to turn you and I into investigators, trying to decode uh, hidden meanings or to draw straight lines between what here is here in the text and what might be happening in the world today. Rather, they are designed to inspire us to a deeper faith in God and a, a greater hope in Him, greater worship of God. They are designed to help us live in the here and the now with great confidence, regardless of how and when these visions, these dreams and these visions might become a reality in the future. Friends, this is big picture stuff. You'll find all manner of theories about what these images mean. Can I encourage you at the outset just to be a little bit wary, be a little bit wary of heading down various rabbit holes, trying to equate these images with people or places today. I'll say a little bit more about that a bit later on. But indeed, as we walk through this dream, uh, perhaps... uh, Um, there's one thing, one more thing to say about the nature of this vision, and that is the context here takes place at night in a dream. Verses 1 to 2, if you have a look, says that Daniel very clearly says that this vision came to Daniel as he slept. Three times Daniel tells us here that this all took place at night in verses 2, 7 and 13. He wants us to really make sure we get it. This is a dream. This is a dream. This is not trying to give us particulars. It's a dream. It's not a precise script. It's a distant prophetic glimpse into God's glorious future. As shadowy as it is, however, Daniel's vision has consoled and inspired God's people, people like you and I now, uh, for more than two and a half thousand years. 
And I believe it gives us, the church in 2021, precious hope in the surpassing power of God. So whilst we might not be able to know specific details, we are given here a hope for today, a hope for tomorrow, in the ultimate victory of God over all of his enemies. Let's dive in and have a look and see what's happening here. First is these four great beasts, these four wonderful beasts um, that come up out of the sea. Now, of course, the sea should automatically think terror. It should automatically make you think chaos. Uh, the Hebrews, the Jewish people were not a seafaring people. For them, the, the, the sea held great terror. So these beasts coming up out of the sea should tell us something. Each is different from the others, and each is more threatening than the one that came before. Uh, the explanation in verse 17 tells us that these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Now, like the dream that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2, a month or so ago, if you remember, uh, this vision likely begins with Babylon itself. But then it gets a little bit ambiguous as to who these beasts are supposed to represent. The first beast is like a, a lion with eagle's wings in verse 4 there. Now, Babylon was indeed symbolized at times as a lion or as an eagle. Ezekiel does it that way. So we can be fairly sure that this first beast represents Babylon itself. And then another beast arise. This one is like a bear, a devouring flesh, we're told in verse 5. The identity of this beast is less clear, uh, whether it might be the Medes and the Persians, or maybe just the Persians, lots of speculation. It begins to get less certain, and that's by design. These images resist any sort of precise identification. And some scholars would tell us that all of these beasts all of these beasts are symbolic. Note that the early church wanted to try to identify that final terrible beast with the Roman Empire. And indeed, the reformers during the Reformation tried to identify this beast with the papacy as well. So down through the church's history, the church has tried to sort of make these equations, try to sort of say, well, this is that. Um, I'm not sure that that is, is really that helpful. I don't think it's helped to be dogmatic about that which scripture itself is not dogmatic. Let's not go beyond the pages of scripture. It is sometimes a problem within the evangelical church. We go a little bit beyond what God actually says here in the text. Let's stick to the text itself. The third beast is like a leopard with wings and with four heads. Now we hear significantly that this beast, things are getting worse has been has dominion been given to it uh, it's in verse six now this may mean that it's been given a new extent even further power than the previous two beasts more height and extent of power and the two key words here that will echo again and again in this chapter and indeed right through the book of daniel i hope you've been picking it up is dominion right power and authority is given to this particular beast uh, more on that in, in just a few minutes. Beast three, perhaps, maybe scholars think might be Greeks. But with each beast, it's less and less certain who this beast is supposed to represent. The point, church, the point, dear friends, is that, the, is that there is a pattern here of escalating evil, escalating power, escalating rebellion against God. As we see in this final terrible beast. Finally comes a fourth beast in verse 7, terrifying dreadful, exceedingly strong with great iron teeth. We're told three times in chapter 7 that this fourth beast is different from all the other beasts that went before it in its strength, 
in the terror that it strikes into the saints and in the extent of its power. That's in verses 7 and 19 and, and 23. Indeed, in verse 23, we are told it will devour the whole earth. Friends, forget COVID. This is really scary stuff. A beast emerging from the ocean that will devour the whole earth. This beast is so powerful, it's not even identified with any known animal. It's just a beast. It has ten horns. Now, remember, a horn was a symbol of power and, and strength. Animals with horns can harm and maim and kill. It loses its, its impact for we modern Aussies, I, I think. But you can see out to the ancients, an animal with ten horns? Well, that would have been an incredibly fearsome beast. Indeed. In verse 8, we read that there came up among them another little horn, a little horn, with a mouth, mouth speaking boastfully or speaking proudly, depending on which translation you've got there in front of you. So it seems as though this is a picture of the climactic, most powerful ruler of a final dynasty here upon the earth. In fact, over, over all of history, who speaks boastfully in verses 11 and 20. In particular, this little horn takes great aim at two targets, that is, turns its arrogant tongue against God himself and against his people. In verse 25, we read that he will speak words against the Most High and shall oppress his holy people or his saints, depending on which version you've got there. And ominously, friends, sadly, he's not all talk, is he? Quite often you hear boastful people and they're all talk. In this case, it appears as though he's Sadly, not all talk, because if we look at verse 21, it says he made war with God's people and defeated them. That is, until the Ancient of Days came. And what a great day that will be. Can I get an amen? The contrast that I want you to see, clearly see here, is, is between the set finite, the God-controlled period of time when evil is allowed to prosper and the forever and ever and ever reign of God. So here we have a snapshot of, of history. Evil powers arising and terrorizing God's people for a time. In verse 12, we are reminded that there is a now but not yet dimension to God's ultimate rule. Friend, did you know that we are in the in-between time? Do you know that the victory has been won for us at the cross of Christ? Amen? The victory has been won. We are a victorious people, but yet we wait for the final consummation of God's kingdom. We wait for it in all of its rule. We are in the in-between times. The victory has been won at the cross of Christ, but that doesn't mean that you and I, his saints, get to kick back and enjoy the ride. Far from it. I think the best illustration I've heard of this theological concept of the now but not yet nature of God's kingdom is those uh, Japanese soldiers who were out in the Pacific following World War II still fighting long after Japan had surrendered. Now, I actually looked this up this week because um, I thought they were kind of old wives' tales, but it, it, it actually happened. This happened right up until 1974 is the last confirmed holdout of a Japanese soldier still fighting. His name was Private Chiro Nakamura, and he surrendered on the island of Moritai in Indonesia in December of 1974. Friend, I was alive at that point. 
Young Pete Chapman was crawling around the earth. He's still fighting the Second World War. Can you believe it? I'm not that old, all right? The war ended a long time before I was born. Japan had surrendered. Victory had been won, and yet the Allies were still mopping up for many years to come. Christian Jesus tells us that this, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. Praise God. John chapter 16, verse 33, I have overcome the world, so take heart. The Westminster Confession of Faith that is noted in the, uh, in the basis of union we gave to our new members this morning, it is one of the founding documents of the Protestant wing of the church of which we are a part. It states very clearly, that we are in the midst of a continual and irreconcilable war. We are in the midst of a continual and irreconcilable war. Friend, if you thought coming to church was going to be all peace, love and mung beans, you chose the wrong faith. We are in the midst of a continual and irreconcilable war. So that's the first scene, verses 2 to 8. Then comes the first uh, scene change in verse 9. Um, the Ancient of Days holds court into all the confusion and horror and terror of these threatening, escalating and seemingly uncontrollable beasts, the vision pivots. Daniel sees that thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days takes his seat in verse 9. Friends, this is a judgment scene. This is a courtroom scene with God himself acting as the judge of history. This is the God Most High. It's a term that's used four times. Throughout this, throughout this chapter, Most High God, who takes his seat as judge of all the earth, the earth that he made and rules. He is the one of whom Psalm 90 speaks, before the mountains were even brought forth. Forever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This ancient of days, God himself is set to preside over all the nations, over all of history and to issue his final judgment and to execute justice. As, as a name for God, the ancient of days emphasizes both his eternality as well as his fitness to be the one and final decisive judge of all history, over every tribe, over every nation and indeed over every individual. This is a name for God on his judgment seat. Not only has God been there from the beginning, he's seen it all, he's presided over it all, reigning supreme as God, guiding the course of history as he wills. Ephesians 1.11 says more about that. This is God acting decisively in his perfect timing to humble the proud and to exalt the humble. And this ancient of days far surpasses the strength and power of any worldly kingdom. But not only is he eternal, he's clothed in white, we see in verse 9, uh, to reflect his utter purity. His hair, we're told, is like white, pure white wool to reflect the bottomless depths of the wisdom that he has amassed down through the ages. And a river of fire, remember fire is a, a purifying agent, a river of fire emerges from his throne. It's a, even the fact that he is seated is in fact a sign of authority. The judge has taken his seat. So too the magnitudes that serve him, 10,000 times 10,000. I'll let you do the maths, but it's a lot of people serving him in verse 10. All this communicates God's incredible power 
and purity and judgment. So with the Ancient of Days seated on his throne, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Are you excited yet, church? Friends, this is reminiscent, of course, of the scenes described in the book of Revelation, the other great apocalypse in the Bible, where books are open and accounts are settled. Friends, if you've ever been cheated or wrong or hurt, I've got good news for you this morning. Justice will prevail. God's justice will prevail. All the injustice that has ever been done throughout history will one day be reckoned with. Praise God. Don't you think that's good news? Think of how good that is. Every act of cruelty and evil that has ever happened in this world, many of which, let's be honest, have gone unpunished. The evil apparently for a time seemed to be, get away with their evil acts, but not forever. There will be a reckoning. In the third scene, the beasts indeed face this final reckoning. Every deed has been seen and recorded in the books. Nothing slides past the Ancient of Days. These four terrible beasts are indeed destroyed. The arrogant mouth is silenced in verses 11 and in verse 26. This is an amazing display of power of God the Most High. As fierce and as intimidating and powerful as these four terrible beasts were, the Ancient of Days sits in judgment and effortlessly executes justice. There is no threat here to his power. There's no challenge. There's no prolonged struggle. He only says a word and the greatest beast is destroyed. So take courage, church. Take courage. This is what the book of Daniel has been emphasizing for us in stunning fashion over and over again from the very beginning. Over and over again, God has, has been shown to be the one who rules over history, over kingdoms and empires, who chooses to give dominion to whom he wills for a time, but who takes it back in his time when he so chooses. But he doesn't just take dominion back from the fourth beast and destroy it. Interestingly, that's not the end of the story. He then gives rulership to this divine human figure called the Son of Man. So the scene changes again in verses 13 and 14. Look with me there if you've got it open. It says, In my vision at night I looked and behold, behold is Daniel's way of saying, check it out, have a look at this. He really wants to draw our eyes. Behold, have a look here. Before me was one like a Son of Man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the Ancient of Days, God himself, now gives his dominion, which will last forever, to this one, that is like a son of man. Now this phrase, son of man, simply means a human one, a person, someone that is like you and I, someone born of a woman, a son of man. He rules over all and he will not be destroyed like the fourth beast. But this strange figure is not only like a son of man, like a person, he also comes on the clouds of heaven. 
In verse 13 in the original text, as I say, Daniel says, look, check this out. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. Friends, who normally comes on the clouds? It's God himself, isn't it? In the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 104 says, he comes with the clouds as his chariot. And Isaiah 19 says, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift chariot. Throughout the Old Testament, God himself is the great cloud rider. And yet this one, like the Son of Man in verse 13, is not the Ancient of Days himself, because we know that both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man appear here in the same scene. So we might ask, who is this Son of Man? Daniel, what did he make of this figure, this this God-man that appears on on the scene? I'm pretty sure Daniel would say this is... This is surely the heir to the throne of King David. That was what all the Jewish people were waiting for. This Messiah, this this one who would come and usher in God's reign, bring about God's reign. This son of man, though human, far surpasses any other human king. No past, present or future king that has ever reigned uh, will reign like this son of man as he will forever. I want to share with you a brief video that describes the Son of Man a little bit better than I can. It's to the wonderful people at the Bible Project. Are you familiar with the Bible Project? These guys do great work, wonderfully simple illustrations that illustrate for us deep eternal truth. This is the, this is, uh, the Bible Project's uh, explanation for us in just a few short minutes that puts in wonderfully glorious perspective uh, who this Son of Man really is. Thanks, guys. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man, what does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf, like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast 
while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain. He was jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this son of man alongside God. Huh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the son of man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives, and he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device. But Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst. And then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus' style in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. Good stuff, isn't it? Powerful stuff. And that's our final point this morning. The final word of hope that makes it incredibly personal for us. Throughout all of these ancient visions, these wondrous beasts, and the Son of Man coming and winning the ultimate victory for us at the cross of Calvary, the final thing that this chapter points to and the final thing that the, the entire sweep of Scripture points to is that you and I will get to share in that victory, praise God. 
You and I will rule with the Son of Man together uh, under the headship of the, of the Ancient of Days. So over these past few weeks, we've been learning that this world is not our home. This world is imperfect, that for a time we have to put up with evil. For a time we put up with injustice and pain and sickness and death. I want to leave you with a final little story as we depart Daniel. A story of a returning missionary, returning home back in the days when international travel only took place via the sea. He was coming back into New York City in this particular story. He, he happened to be on board the same ship, however, as a really well-known, renowned national figure, a very famous man. So as the ship pulled into port, there was a huge crowd uh, awaiting uh, the arrival of this, of this famous man. There were crowds and banners and photographers who had all come to see this man home. The missionary couldn't help but notice the contrast. He'd been laboring for a treasure that didn't perish, but in obscurity. He'd been pouring his life into sowing seed for the gospel. And as he scanned the faces on the key, he realized that there was no one there to welcome him home. As waves of self-pity began to, to wash over him, he realized the truth as clearly, he said, as if a voice had spoken to him from heaven. Do not be discouraged, for you have not yet reached home. Friend, you have not yet reached home. Like Daniel, we are resident aliens in a strange land. Like Daniel, can I ask that you might let this story of the sovereignty and majesty of, and power of the ancient of days shake you to your very foundation, shake you to your core. And like Daniel, may you stand firm through it all. Stand firm, even if evil is allowed to prosper for a time, knowing that the ultimate victory has been won at the cross of Christ, and that through faith in this Son of Man, Jesus Christ, you will reign with him forever and ever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this word of hope to us this morning. That in the times of trial, in the midst of trouble, be it national cataclysms of war, of disease and pandemics, or in our own private little pains and struggles and temptations, we say thank you, Father, that you are above it all. You are the ancient of days. You are before all and after all. You, are, you see all, nothing passes your gaze. And you will, in your time, in your way, set things right. So come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. May the Son of Man come and defeat evil, vanquish evil once and for all. We look forward to that day when he does so, putting an end to crying, to death and to pain. We look forward to that day when we will reign with him in your glory, Lord. We pray that you will help us to remain steadfast until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.